This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hello and welcome to episode two of You Can't Say That, part of Hall & Wilcox's Smarter Lawcast podcast series. These episodes relate to the law of defamation and I'm joined by my colleague and defamation expert, Hamish McNair. Last week's podcast was in relation to a defamation from the perspective of a plaintiff or a claimant. Uh, this week, we're looking at defamation from a defendant's side. Um, that is from the perspective of someone who um, is dealing with defending a defamation claim. Hamish, what's the first step when someone receives a defamation claim? I think the first observation to make when you receive a concerns notice from someone is to not ignore it. You really need to engage with it. And I think some people have a tendency to, particularly if they feel some kind of guilt or they feel there's a degree of risk arising from what they've said or what's been published, they'll sort of stick their head in the sand. And I think that's certainly the number one point is to not ignore it and hope they'll go away because it certainly doesn't result in any benefit to you from doing that. Um, and following on from what we were discussing last week, I think um, it's important to note that if you only give people the option of litigating, then you're sort of forcing them into a hole there as well. So if you're going to try and resolve it in a way which doesn't involve court, then you're better to, um, you're better to engage with it proactively. What, what if the potential claim is, is raised in an informal or an ad hoc way rather than a, a formal concerns notice from a, from a lawyer? I think that's actually presents an opportunity for you there because um, under the current laws of defamation, which changed recently, you can't actually commence a proceeding until you've issued a formal concerns notice. So that actually gives you a bit of a head start on responding to a claim and engaging with it and trying to sort out what the issues are before it turns into any kind of uh, formal issue. I think the best way to resolve these things is face-to-face -face and understand that these things don't um, necessarily work well in the current pandemic. But I think people usually getting in a room or getting on a Zoom call can certainly work things out a bit better than they can over emails or in letters. Thanks. When should a person who's um, received a defamation claim speak to their lawyer? If there's been a uh, formal concerns notice, and I think it's appropriate for someone to certainly go and see a lawyer. The reason why is that if they've gone to the effort of issuing a concerns notice, it shows that first of all, they're serious about the concerns. And second of all, that they've probably also um, engaged legal advisors. So um, it makes a lot of sense to engage a lawyer at that stage. And that doesn't necessarily involve a lot of expense or time. You really just need to speak to someone and get their professional opinion. Because like I said, it does really set up a claim if, if you stick your head in the sand. And your lawyer will be able to give you some advice about, you know, whether it's appropriate to apologise or appropriate to perhaps respond with a, a counter offer. And can defamation claims be covered by insurance? They can, um, and in a lot of cases they are, which some people aren't necessarily aware of. Um, I think insurance is an important consideration in any litigation, but particularly in defamation, given the expenses are so high. So um, it depends on your, your business or your personal circumstances in terms of what kinds of policies might respond. But in our experience, it's usually professional indemnity policies. So doctors, accountants, engineers, those kinds of professions, and sometimes trustees and, and other cyber policies will also respond on defamation. So who, who should a person speak to first, their insurer or their lawyer? 
if you receive a concerns notice and you think that you have an insurance policy which responds, the first person you should speak to is probably your broker just to get a copy of the policy and make sure, uh, get their initial views on whether the policy responds. Uh, and then you've got a, an obligation to notify your insurer of any claims. So um, the first step would be through the insurance route if that's available to you. Uh, and they will, um, in most cases, appoint their own lawyers to take conduct of the, of the claim on your behalf. If you don't have an insurance policy that responds or you'd like to just seek some informal advice and you can, you're at liberty to go and speak to whoever you want, I would recommend Hall and Wilcox, but that's a matter for you. <laughs> I'd agree with that recommendation. Who can be liable for a defamatory publication? It's a very broad concept. Um, the number of people who can be potentially liable from a, one particular publication can actually be quite significant. So um, the, the threshold is anyone who's participated in the publication. So that could be someone who, you know, for a traditional kind of media article, it could be the journalist, it could be the editor, it could be the publisher, it could be the distributor. Um, and if you're looking at a more modern example, like a, a tweet or something on a company's Facebook page, that would be the person who actually drafted the tweet, it could be the administrator of the page, and then of course it could be the company itself. And what about people who republish or retweet? Yeah, republication is a big issue in this context um, because a lot of people, particularly on social media, they think, oh, you know, someone has said something about someone else on on Twitter or Facebook or something like that. They feel like that's their risk and that they've, they're the ones who bear the risk of defamation so that if I reshare it, if I retweet it, um, if I copy paste it onto a different forum, then I'm not going to be on the hook for that. In actual case, um, a republisher is as liable potentially as the original publisher of a, a defamatory matter. Hamish, what happens if the comments that are alleged to be defamatory were made um, by a person in the context of their employment. Um, should that person be responding personally to a concerns notice or should they be involving their employer or both? It really depends on the context, um, but it's important to note that vicarious liability of employers for the conduct of their employees does apply in the defamation context. So it really depends on whether what that person has done or the publication that we're talking about, whether that was done in the course of their employment. So if that was something which was done um, through the company social media pages, of course, that would be something that they should speak to their, um, their employer about. If it was something that they've done on their personal account, which might not be as obviously connected to their employment. So they might've say, you know, a lawyer working in a law firm might've made a comment about a, a politician and might've received a concerns notice from that politician. If that's not necessarily related to their employment, that's really a personal matter, um, then it, it, ultimately it's a matter for the individual, but the line needs to be drawn by that person as to whether it's an employment or, an, or a personal matter. Another example might be if they, they sent an email from their work email address, but it had nothing to do with um, their employment. Yes, and you do say that a lot. You see, in fact, I'm, I'm constantly surprised by the number of emails that people send from their work accounts, which have absolutely nothing to do with their job. Um, and it does, there have been cases where the fact that it's come from a work email address um, has actually involved their employer um, by reason of that publication coming from that server. Therefore, their employer is someone who has participated in that particular publication of that email. So it's certainly an issue. We talked on the last episode about defamation claims in the era of social media. I know that there was a recent decision in the High Court called Vola that had quite a bit of press. What were the facts of that case? So this case, uh, which was handed down by the High Court in September, was was a pretty big one in the in the area of defamation law. Um, it concerned Dylan Vola, who was a, a person who was uh, incarcerated in the, the juvenile detention system in the Northern Territory uh, and was featured in a Four Corners episode in the ABC uh, 
in 2016. And what happened there was, you probably recall, there was a lot of um, uh, media coverage about Mr. Voller and his experience and the response from the, um, from the government at the time. And various news outlets, including the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian, Sky News, they all used their Facebook pages to promote stories that they were running about Mr. Voller, which is um, pretty common nowadays in terms of running that multi-channel promotional kind of material where they try and seek engagement from people and try and get more people to, to watch their television channels or to, um, to read their articles. And what happened was that on those, third, on those Facebook pages that those outlets were operating, there was a number of third party users who came on and made various comments uh, in, the, in posts on, on those Facebook pages about Mr. Voller, which he alleges a, a defamatory of him. Uh, and instead of suing the individuals who posted on those pages for defaming him, Mr. Voller decided instead to sue the media outlets on the basis that they are publishers of the third party comments. And Hamish, what was the ultimate legal decision in that case? Why is it important to know? Well, the ultimate decision was that the High Court did find that uh, the media outlets as owners of the Facebook pages were um, liable or potentially liable as publishers of the third party comments. And the reason why that's a significant finding in the context of defamation law, particularly in, the, in relation to digital defamation online, is because you don't always know who's behind these posts. And you also, if you're looking to um, seek compensation for harm that's been done to you, you obviously want to chase, you want to name the defendant which has the deepest pockets. So some of these people might be um, have no assets behind them and have no um, ability to satisfy a damages claim, whereas these media outlets obviously can. So what's the key learning or takeaway from the Vola decision for media organisations? Well, the, the thing about it is actually, it's not about media organisations, it's about owners of any Facebook page or any social media platform. So um, businesses, obviously, from small, from takeaway shops all the way through to, you know, your, your biggest ASX listed companies all have social media pages where they try and engage with their customers. Um, and, and businesses have certainly seen that as a good way to engage with their, their clientele or potential customers about products and things like that. So the key takeaway from it is that if you're operating a social media page um, in a personal or commercial capacity, um, you need to be aware of who is publishing on your uh, social media pages. And if you can, and this has been a recent development following this decision, um, you may want to choose to actually deactivate the ability of others to make comments on your Facebook or your um, social media platforms to avoid that risk that you might be deemed to be a, a publisher. Doing it as we speak. Um, <laughs> yes. Thanks, thanks for the tip, Hamish. Um, just getting back to, to defending defamation claims more generally, if I one of our clients was to receive a concerns notice what sort of defences might be available to them? So there are several defences to defamation um, which arise under both common law and statute, and some are more narrow than others. So some are very rarely raised, whereas others are far more frequent. Uh, the three big ones that we usually see raised um, in sort of modern practice are truth or justification. Uh, the second one is qualified privilege. And the third is uh, honest opinion. So what would constitute truth well, truth is the easy one. And I think most people would understand that truth is a defense to defamation. And, and the reason why uh, truth is um, a defense to defamation is because falsity is presumed. So if you're bringing a defamation claim, the falsity of, of the defamatory meaning is presumed. So if you can prove that it's true, there's no harm to reputation because um, it is what it is. Uh, and justification is another defense I mentioned in that context, which is really the 
the statutory version of the common law defense of truth. Um, but what you need to establish in essence is you, you need to prove the substantial truth of defamatory meaning, including in different contexts. And I think that's an important point. So for example, if someone, if you've, if a, a defamatory imputation, which arises from a publication is that you're dishonest, um, you can prove the truth of that using other context. It's not limited to whatever you're talking about in that particular publication. And when would qualified privilege arise? Qualified privilege uh, is a defence which is directed towards the public interest um, in a person being able to make a frank and open communication to someone else um, without obviously fear of being held liable for defamation, even where whatever they say turns out to be incorrect. And I think it's an important, um, it's what we refer to as a confess and avoid defence. So instead of saying, that I haven't defamed you, therefore I'm not liable to you. What you're saying here is, yeah, okay, you know, what I said might have been defamatory of you, but I have this defence because of this particular context. Um, and there are two um, defences. There's the, the common law defence and the statutory defence of qualified privilege. Again, and they're, they're a little bit different, but their key elements um, are the fact that the publication has to occur on a privileged occasion, which is where both parties have an interest in the information being conveyed. So examples for this are where you're giving a reference for someone who's um, applying for a job or you're answering a police inquiry, uh, communications between teachers and parents, uh, between um, employers and employees or between a trader and a credit agency. So th those are privileged occasions. The second element is that the publication has to be related to that occasion. And the third is that they, there can't be any malice in the publication, which is that you can't intend to harm um, or be reckless as to whether you harm the reputation of the person involved um, through that publication. The other thing as well, I would just note is that the, the statutory defence has an added element of reasonableness, which the common law defence doesn't have. What's some examples that people might know where qualified privilege has been successful? Some of the big ones, other than the ones I mentioned there, um, and I think I always like to quote the one about the job application, because I think um, there have been lots of cases where people have put people down as references and um, people have said defamatory things about them to their to their new employer, which is a pretty awkward kind of situation. Um, but corporate contexts is somewhere we've seen a lot in our practice. So that would be um, discussions between shareholders at a general meeting of a company, uh, statements made in um, other company documents, which are uh, related to the functioning of a corporation. So in that context, you would say that's a privileged occasion because there's an interest in that there being full and frank disclosure amongst shareholders or directors um, also, um, boards, interactions between board members. And in those circumstances, um, you can raise the defense of, of qualified privilege to get you out of any kind of strife if someone takes offense to something that's been said. Great. Tell us about honest opinion and fair comment as a defense. Well, honest opinion um, is frequently used in the context of, of social media uh, where someone is wading into a debate about someone else. Uh, um, and it was interesting to see that honest opinion was unsuccessfully argued in the recent defamation action brought by Peter Dutton against a refugee advocate who'd, who'd posted a tweet about him. I think you might've seen that in the press. There was a tweet by this particular person about Mr. Dutton. Uh, Mr. Dutton sued and, and was ultimately awarded um, damages of $35,000 arising from the tweet. Um, but in that case, it was an interesting one to look at the defense of honest opinion and go through the elements. The first one is that there's a matter that you're speaking about as an expression of opinion rather than a statement of fact. The second is that the opinion relates to a matter of public interest. And the third and important one is that the opinion is based on proper material 
and that material either has to be set out in the publication itself or it has to be notorious so it's so widely known that everyone would understand um, and the the defect in in that recent case involving peter dutton was that the the tweet didn't itself disclose the material on which the opinion was being expressed and on that basis the defense failed and ultimately that person was was uh, unsuccessful in their defense hamish we pride ourselves in being commercial and practical with our advice Today, we've talked about defamation claims arising from a, a concerns notice. What practical tips can we give people to avoid a defamation claim arising in the first place? Yeah, I think um, ultimately that's what we want to achieve. No one really wants to be engaging in these kinds of back and forth and getting you know hot tempers and letters from lawyers. Um, I think the first point is to think before you publish anything. Um, and if you're unsure about something, ask someone else for their opinion. I think we all um, have our own views about what the, the meanings of what we might say are conveyed to someone else. But if you have a feeling that you're not sure or that you're, you're worried about how that might be perceived, it certainly makes sense to, to just run it by someone else. That doesn't have to be a lawyer. It can just be, can be someone else uh, you work with, you know, your mum, your mate, whoever it is, and just say, look, I want to, I'm thinking about, you know, saying this about someone, or, you know, I really, I took offence to what that person did. And I'm thinking about going on Facebook and saying some things about them. What do you think about that? And sort of bounce it off them and see what they would say about it. So you can sort of have that sounding board. Um, and it doesn't, if you take that step, it won't necessarily mean that you won't go ahead with whatever you're thinking about doing, but it'll just mean that you might be able to to take the sting out of it or by using different words or to set up a defence if there are any other uh, any issues ultimately raised. And I think if you're a business, just coming back to that point about the fact that um, uh, the vicarious liability of employers for, for the conduct of their employees, I think it's important uh, to educate the people you work with. So if you if you uh, as a business engaging with people on social media, you need to have a social media policy in place. And you also need to um, think about how you want to engage with, with members of the public and whether you're going to moderate comments or whether you're going to turn comments off um, or whether you, know, you can put various profanity filters on your social media to try and sort of cut down on those kinds of issues as well. It makes sense to me. Um, they're really good tips. Thanks to everyone who's joined us today for this episode. Next episode, we're going to be talking about recent developments um, and game-changing issues in the law of defamation in Australia. We hope you'll be able to join us for that episode. If you have any questions in relation to today's episode or if you're facing a defamation claim, uh, please contact Hamish or myself. Um, our details are on the Hall & Wilcox website um, or you can contact us via LinkedIn. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please subscribe to our website to be notified of further episodes. Thanks, Hamish. Thanks, everyone.